We've already read some. Hey, you said Steve, you're standing. That's awesome. See, I'm looking down. Don't even pay attention, right? Yeah, we're standing up, right? Um, Psalm 46. I just want to read the last couple of verses again. Verse 8. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Come behold the works of the Lord. How he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. You may be seated. So we are in our series in, called The Summer in the Psalter. And um, last week we began our series just trying to help us grasp the importance of the Psalter to the people of God. And uh, we noted the fact that the Psalter plays an important role in the, in the, in the, in the people of God, among the people of God, because it is like, it's, it's, the, it's a liturgy given to the people of God of how to approach God, worship Him for who He is, what He's about, how He's revealed Himself to us, um, in the midst of just the trials and difficulties of life. Like, it's not immune, Christian worship's not immune you're not coming in here as something separate from the lives that you lived walking in here. And that our God knows that, invites us to worship him and be reminded of the wonderful truths of who he is and what he has accomplished and is accomplishing through his son, Jesus. And we noted in Psalm 1 and 2 last week that they they play kind of this dueling banjo approach to the Psalms, right? There's the Psalm 1 just brings us face to face with this is what we long for, the blessed life. But at the end of the psalm, it gives us no hope on how to even accomplish the blessed life because we ourselves are separated from God because of our sin. So indeed, even though there's this parity between the blessed man and the wicked man, all of us stand without Jesus as the wicked man because we are looking for that blessed life on our own. But in Psalm 2, we say we see the opposite. We see God comes in and he gives us a tale of these two kingdoms and he shows and he appoints his and, and, and magnifies his one true king, which we know is Jesus. And through him, we are called, those of us who long for the blessed life, to take refuge in him. I take refuge in Christ Jesus, our Savior and Redeemer. And so for us to even read and study the Psalms appropriately over the next several weeks, we have to kind of always keep that in the back of our minds. Or otherwise, when we come to texts like Psalm 46 today, which is going to be our, 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 a mighty God, our mighty fortress, excuse me, a mighty fortress is our God, what I'm titling it, we, we, we can forget, so easily forget and turn our hearts like the psalmist calls us away from to, to, be, to fret in our own activity, to, to try to fix things that we can't fix and to, think that, and to fear things that, we are, that, that will control us. And, it, and then this psalm speaks to it speaks to right to the midst of God's people who find themselves in any manner of difficulties in this life. I mean, we're in, the world calls this Pride Month. And I won't spend time there, but obviously the world has made it very clear this is no longer a revolution. 
It is a religion. And you will bow to that religion. You can't do both. You can't bow to the God of the Bible and bow to the religion of the world. And so we are in this world and we live in this kind of awkward space, do we not? One foot in the world and one foot in, we'll talk about more in this later, one foot in the kingdom of God in some sense, we are, although we are fully in there. And we need to have truth to hold on to as we go about the work of being God's people, the life that God has called us to live. So many of us, when we think of what has already been noted this morning, the great reformer Martin Luther, we think of a, three things typically. We think of his treatment of Romans 117, which is, of course, that bulwark, that, that, that Magna Carta of the Reformation, the just shall live by faith alone. We think about that, which is, of course, huge. We think about the every year October 31st comes in around, and it's not Halloween, it's Reformation Day. And you nail the, everyone always says nailed it on, you know, you see these little thesis, the things that come, memes that come on, the, on Facebook and social media. He nailed the 95 theses to the Wittenberg door there and basically outlined the necessary reforms for the church to get back on track. Important. We even note about the song, I mean, the, the hymn we sing this morning, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. But what few people don't know that what really um, one of the way, ways that made Luther so popular to people was his, actually his work in the Psalms. That he spent years lecturing through the Psalms with a distinctly Christ-centered interpretation, showing how those Psalms point us to true worship in Jesus. And his favorite Psalm was, and he writes about it extensively, is Psalm 46, which is the very Psalm that inspired the great hymn that we sang this morning. And the psalm kept his heart steady in the midst of dark and dangerous times of the Reformation. When it cast his soul down into deep discouragement and deep depression. Luther said, we sing this psalm to the praise of God. Why? Because God is with us and powerfully and miraculously defends his church against all fanatical spirits, against the gates of hell, against the implacable uh, uh, hatred of the devil, and against all assaults of the world, the flesh, and sin. When he was in the midst of the hardest times of his life, he would always return to Psalm 46 and remind his soul, take, take rest in your God. The great, a great uh, Lutheran scholar speaking of this and writing about this whole phenomenon for, for Luther says this, Few psalms breathe the spirit of sturdy confidence in the Lord in the midst of very real dangers and as strongly as Psalm 46. I love that. Few psalms breathe the spirit of sturdy confidence in the Lord. And so borrowing on that comment, here's the main idea this morning. As the church faces no new yeah, no new threats, equally distressing threats, but no new threats. In this present day, we live with the same sturdy confidence that God will be our refuge and our strength. Believer, just hang on to that. Let me read again. As the church faces no new but yet equally distressing threats in our present moment, our present day, we live with a sturdy confidence that God will be, continues to be, our refuge and our strength. Now let me give you a little context for this, for this psalm. 
there's, a, there's some debate, but largely most of the commentators believe that this psalm um, is rooted in uh, 2 Kings verse, uh, chapters 18 and 19. And it's about Hezek, when Hezekiah was on the throne in Judah. He was one of the good kings who led righteously before God. Um, when many of his predecessors and many of those in, in Israel were not leading faithfully and caving to compromise... But even as he led faithfully, he wasn't immune. His people weren't immune to threats and difficulties. This is one of the things that we must remember, that we can be as faithful as we want to. That doesn't mean that we get the easy life. In fact, probably the opposite. To live faithfully probably creates a lot more tension in the world than we would like for it to do. And so he faced dangers and threats from the rising power of Assyria to the north. They'd already kind of swung in, started conquering, um, started conquering Israel, Samaria, and whatnot. And they finally get to the gates of Jerusalem. I said Hezekiah. He is actually in Jerusalem. I'm sorry, he is in Israel. Excuse me. And Sennacherib, the king of Israel, sent his most faithful general to the gates of the city there in Jerusalem. And um, the two kings, uh, and Second Kings reports that what happened next is actually amazing. As he stood there, this general, he was calling out for Hezekiah and boasting in, his own efforts and boasting that none of the gods of the other nations had been able to stop him. So what does he think that his God's going to do for him? And so he stood there defiantly and he waves his finger, not only at Hezekiah, but waves his finger at heaven. And so when Hezekiah received this letter, this correspondence, he turned to the Lord. He went to the temple and he went to pray and he, and he asked God, his God to deliver him and, and deliver his people from this dangerous foe. And so God, in his mercy, sends a messenger, Isaiah, to him to comfort him with these words. God will defend the city, Hezekiah. Sennacherib's army would return to Nineveh, will return to Nineveh, and he will die. Now, it's hard to see in the middle of that when you have 200,000 troops at your doorstep. But nonetheless, this is a promise of God. So what followed that night is astounding. They... It could be nothing attributed to them other than the work of God. The, the Jews went to sleep that night. Hezekiah went to sleep that night. I'm, I'm ad-libbing a little bit here because I can't imagine doing anything else. I don't know what else you could do in face of danger. So then just, okay, God, you said it. I'm going to trust you. Um, and that night, God sent an angel through their encampment, and he slayed 185,000 of their soldiers. And the next day... We find that they are retreating. And then as we continue to read in chapter 19, the end result is Sennacherib himself, the king, dies, is killed. Psalm 46 is a psalm that sings to God's, helps God's people sing of how we, his people, can face threats and snares from rebel nations, rebel peoples, threats, warring threats. And in this psalm, I want us to look at four comforting thoughts, imperatives, if you will, that'll help us hold on in this month. And then not just in this month, but the next month and the next years, no matter how long this trend continues as it is. Hang on until Jesus returns. And so what we find here is there's, there's four of them. I'm just going to just give them to you one by one and let's just talk about them for a second. The first one is we need not fear for our God is our refuge and strength. 
Seems pretty straight from the text. I like straight from the text because it's plain and I don't need to be that creative for you. I think you get this, right? We need not fear because our God is our refuge and strength. We see this in verse 1 through 3. Our God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear though the earth gives See, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. So verse 1 calls God's people to look to God for two kinds of help. Number one, they look to God for refuge. And number two, they look to God for strength. To look to God for refuge is to recognize that sometimes, sometimes, God does shield us from the ongoing threats around us, like we did with Hezekiah. You cry out to God, and sometimes, like Psalm 91, 7 through 8, a thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it, will not come, uh, but, but it will not come near you. You will only observe your eye, with your eye and see with the punishment of the wicked. Verse 21, um, I mean, sorry, verse, verse 7 and 11 tell us that, he, that what that means for us is that God is indeed our, our fortress. Just like the people in the city that night, surrounded Their doom was pending. God himself was their fortress, and he was their protector. But it's not just those we look to him and that he will always show up in every situation and we will never have to suffer. He actually looked to him for strength. Because sometimes we are afflicted. Sometimes we do suffer. That's just the nature of being people who are truthful people, people who are living in light of the true, one true God, will have to experience in a world that is so set in rebellion against God. Amen? In those times, we find that God is our help, that he's our strength. And strength in what? Well, verse 2 and 3 come explain what what that picture looks like. The earth gives way, the mountains falling into the sea. I mean, these are very vivid pictures of the reversal of creation, the reversal of day three, you might say, specifically of Genesis Right? The foundations of the world seemingly seem to be coming unglued. They be, they're shaken to the point that chaos is ensuing and the world literally feels like it is crumbling beneath our feet. Maybe you feel that way today. Maybe you feel in light of all the things that are going on in our world, you feel like there's just no way the world is going to continue forward. And, God, and, and we're in the midst of this and God says, have strength. I will be your strength. I'll not only be your refuge, but I'm going to be your strength in the midst of this. And we got to remember one of the beautiful things about understanding God as a covenant-keeping God. He keeps a covenant in, in terms of creation, but he also keeps a covenant with his own people. There's two sides of it. There's the covenant with creation where God says, I, until my purposes are fulfilled, I will uphold the earth, even though it fall, and even though it goes wicked, even though it rebels against me. We see this in, in Genesis 9 through 11 when God keeps that covenant with Noah and, and, makes the, and the rainbow indicates this, this picture of God preserving the earth. He, will never long, he won't submit it to that until his purposes have concluded. So it's not just a, a covenant with you and I through his son Jesus, but even in the midst of a, a world that is bent on destroying God's own creation, destroying the very world that they say they love, our God is committed to upholding that he will be our strength in the midst of these desperate times. And you'll notice in this text, there's three stanzas, and it ends with a Selah after each one of these. And we don't really take note of these things, but Selah in, 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 in the Psalms are, they're, they're like pauses in the music. 
They're meant to call us to a moment of contemplation of this great truth. And I would ask you, friend, before we even move on, can you pause and contemplate the magnitude of what you just heard? The magnitude of the fact that in the midst of the world you and I live in, he will be our refuge and he will be our strength. Though the world looks, feels like it's crumbling, it feels like we have a, 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 very, a very weak place to stand, our God will keep with his people. And this is so important, right? Because this is what God's people are called to do season in and season out. In season and out of season. Rarely are God's people called to go out there in our own strength to transform the culture that is the king right up under our feet. They're called, actually as we see read the Psalms more clearly, they're called to return to their God in the midst of those things. Return to Him. Take refuge in Him. Don't place your hope there. Don't place your hope in the fact that, that societies rise and societies fall. Every last one of them has. And they will continue to do so until Jesus returns. We can engage in work and cultural goods, of course, right? But, but, but as we do, we recognize that those things are going to wax and wane as we do so. But we dare not put our hope in cultural recovery over our hope in our God who's going to come and he's going to usher in the, the true new Jerusalem, as we'll see here in a minute, the true new heavens and new earth. And that's where our using a big theological word, eschatological hope is, looking forward hope. And we can live right now sturdy in that hope. So that's the first thing is we don't fear because God is our refuge and our strength. Number two, verses four through seven, we can stand firm for our God is our fortress. Again, verse seven talks about this. The refrain in verse seven and verse 11 are the exact same thing as two different times that they sing this refrain. The Lord of hosts is with us. Verse seven, the God of Jacob is our fortress. You see the same thing in verse 11. But the reality is in light of the fact that God is our refuge and strength, in light of the fact that, that in, in light of, even though the world crumbles under our feet or at least appears and feels like that sometimes, we have the ability to stand because God is our refuge and, and our fortress. Excuse me, excuse me, he is our fortress. Look at what verses 4 through 7 say. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. In the holy habitation of the Most High, God is, the midst, God is in the midst of her and she shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter, he utters his voice, the earth melts, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Here the psalmist gives us this vivid picture of how he will defend his holy city. Now we mentioned earlier the immediate reference to this would have been um, God preserving Hezekiah and the people of Jerusalem as these impending threats from Assyria are moving in and they're becoming real threats to God's people, and God intervenes for them, and he, does, and, he, and he does away with the armies of Assyria who are marching upon Jerusalem. And it's in, in this time of, of danger, those who reside in Jerusalem were, were safe. Because Jerusalem, this holy city, was their fortress. It was the city of God. And so he says there in verse 4, there is this river whose streams make glad the city of God. So think about the context here. The world's crumbling. Assyria's knocking. Your city looks like it's about to be 
sacked. And here's the psalmist saying, but you've got a river of gladness that comes into the city. The river of gladness there is, there was no river that ran through Jerusalem. The picture here is that river, the psalmist is envisioning again, that future hope of looking into that hope when not, and in this case, not so distant future from 2 Kings, but even more than that, a secure future that depicted, if we look forward to Revelation 21 and 22, that on the bleak backdrop of verses 2 and 3 here, that you and I have this river of peace, this river of shalom for God's people, for us to be glad in. And that's, that's why we get these two parts of verses 7 and 11, these two verses that are these two refrains, because this should cause God's people to worship Him. Our God is with us. Our God is our fortress. The Lord of hosts is with us. The Magna Carta, I said it a minute ago, of the chorus of Psalm 46 is, He's with us and He's our fortress. And friends, let's get to the application here for you and I. The earthly reference here of the holy city, of course, is a mere microcosm. The immediate reference to Hezekiah, Hezekiah, wonderful truth for him, but it meant so much more. Psalm 46 speaks to so much more, does it not? That the city of God is, is this major theme that runs throughout the Old Testament, indeed all of the scriptures, and it speaks to the nature and the safety of all of God's people in every age. It points us forward to the new Jerusalem, that, that symbol of heaven, of everlasting peace, everlasting safety, everlasting comfort. And this place is prepared by God as the final dwelling place for God's people as this age comes to its conclusion one day. So then you look at this river that flows from verse and flows in verse 4, and it points to that river that flows through the throne room of God providing life to God's people for eternity that we see in Revelation 22. Think back to last fall when we did Ezekiel. That same picture was given to God's people through Ezekiel in Ezekiel 47. Go read it for yourself. It's beautiful. And so because of this, the psalmist leads us to two more, even more fundamental imperatives, which will be our last two points this morning. Because you and I don't need to fear because God's our refuge and strength, and because He is our fortress, there are these two imperatives that we see in verse 8 and in verse 10. Come, behold, number one, and be still, number two. These are the natural response of God's people, verses 8 through 11, that help us respond appropriately to the truth that, that God is our fortress and our strength, that God is our refuge and our strength. And so the third point that I want us to consider this morning from, from Psalm uh, 46 is this. We must learn to gaze upward, for our God is at work. We must learn. That's, that is a, the fu a fundamental disposition for God's people. You want to know what the purpose of the church is? Worship your God. Everything else we do runs downstream of that. If we get worship wrong, we will get everything else wrong. Everything. The idea of behold here is one of gazing. Delighting in. The work of God. It reflects the very peace that has been given to God's people. 
that we are that is mentioned there in the river of gladness. This, is every, this has everything to do with, again, our real purpose of worship to God. True worship beholds the works of God. Notice what it says, that God is what you are to behold. He has brought desolation on the earth. That seems odd, right? The world feels like crumbling. What it means is there will be a day when this world as we know it will end. And so anything that is crumbling in this earth is is God's holy work. Not only that, as the world is at endless amounts of war with one another, he's the one who ends wars. He's the one who ends wars. He makes them to cease. He's the one who breaks the bow and he shatters the spear. He sets fire to the chariots. No matter how strong the nations may think they are, our God stops them in their tracks. Behold, friends, gaze upward at the work of God. Our mission as God's church is to behold always and ever the greatness of our God. Penultimate to that means then you and I are called to go preach the gospel, to go into our neighborhoods, into our spaces, that God has appointed us to live in with our neighborhoods, our jobs, our, our, our recreations, whatever they may be. And we seek to share the beauty of God's kingdom to the kingdom of man. That's why I'm a two kingdoms guy. That's why I'm not a post-millennial guy. Sorry for some of you guys, that's a disappointment for you, I know. But it is. I'm not that guy. Why? Because I believe it arises out of a fundamental vision of the church that we worship God and devotion to who he is, to his redeemed people. This means that as we are his people of God in that one space, we live fully in him in this space right now. We are are entirely his people and we stand as a people, God's people, as this embassy that shines forth God's glory and subsequently his grace on on the dark backdrop of the city of man. But we're not just called to be some kind of spiritual, like spiritualize everything. We actually are people who live also with a foot in the kingdom of man. And we are to go there and we are to live and yes, seek to, to, to see the society flourish. And we do so by what? Teaching them what is true, whether they want to hear it or not. Yes. We have a role in, in both kingdoms. And and to be clear, both kingdoms are ruled by Jesus. I know there's like, no, he doesn't just rule the church and somehow another God just kind of stands aloof to the kingdom of man to kind of let it spin off its axis. That's clearly not true here in Psalm 46. He is fully, fully ruler, sovereign ruler of them all. But he relates to them as ruler in different ways, does he not? Friends, Here's where you and I, it gets really good. He relates to you and me by grace, on his mercy. That's a wonderful truth. No longer do you stand under the wrath of God, you stand under the mercy of God because of the Son, Jesus. He relates to his kingdom of God, the kingdom, the kingdom of Christ, if you will, by grace and mercy. But he relates to the earthly kingdom as righteous judge because he is rightfully the righteous judge. He created all in the beginning. And though God has promised a present delay on his wrath, as we mentioned back 
a minute ago, in the covenant of Noah and covenant of creation, until he returns again, that in no way implies that he's not in ruler of every square inch of everything you and I are part of. Every king who's ever ruled, every president, every, every legislator, every principal in every school, every teacher, every, um, every soccer coach, every single square inch of our lives is ruled by God. Every last bit of it. So, gaze. Behold. Brother and sister, you and I live securely under the covenant of grace with Jesus, and that is not going to change. But now we leave this room and we go about the places that God sends us, and we stand confidently, even though the world may be crumbling under our feet, and we, with God's grace and with mercy, show people the better kingdom. Preach the gospel. Which then leads us to the second imperative. Be still. If that is true, if God is truly sovereign over every square inch of reality as you and I know it, isn't it interesting that the psalmist leaves us with the last one, be still. And know that I am God. That I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Why would God end right here? To be still then is to imply that we cease our futile, anxious efforts to change things within our own abilities. It doesn't imply godly living. It doesn't imply that those responses to cultural distortions are wrong. We should go about doing those things. The idea here is to relinquish our anxious toil that seeks to do things apart from resting in God's refuge and strength that we have in verse 1. Be still. Friend, be still. To do this, the psalmist calls us to declare ourselves, to, to declare this truth to ourselves often, routinely, of who God is. Why? Because we forget it. We forget it. That He is exalted among the nations, even if the darkness seems to cloud that truth. That he is exalted on the earth, even as the earth decays from the destruction of sin and death. That he is, as it says there in verse 11, he is present with us. And that he is our fortress as well. See, we are busy pointing to the world about how they have abandoned and denied the glory of God. And there's some truth to that. But I sometimes think that sometimes we as believers, we get, like, we get shocked at sin or sin. And that the world is broken by sin. And that rebellion against God. And, 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 and what God would say is, when we get like that, it's our fear driving us. It's our fear driving us to focus more on how bad things are than how good God is. Yeah? And that's why he says there, be still and know that I am God. You, you, you're the believer, the one inside the temple. You still don't need to be reminded of this. You're the one who's inside the holy city. Be reminded that I am still God. 
that I'm in charge of this, all of this thing that you see around here. And when fear rules our hearts and we face unpredictable times, we tend to live as if we forget God is with us and we tend to live as and forget that he's our fortress and our buttress of truth and security. And so don't think that this is some passing reference. This is God in a loving and merciful way through the psalmist rebuking his people as they're singing this song. You're in the midst of all these dreadful situations. Gaze and be still. I'm not done yet. I'm not done yet. And that's why I love Luther's hymn. It's one of my favorites. Particularly verse 2. And let's just finish our time thinking about verse 2. Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? Be still. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. If you are focusing on yourself, you will miss the man who's on our side. You ask who that may be, Christ Jesus, it is he. Right now, for you and I. Lord Sabaoth, his name from age to age, the same. The same God who showed up for Hezekiah, the inspiration of this psalm, is the same God who come age to age comes and is with his people and takes refuge, or we can take refuge in him. And he must win the battle. He must win the battle. Not you. Not me, not, not even the church. It's not our battle to win, it's God's. We rest in him and we declare the goodness of knowing him through his son Jesus as our battle cry. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. As we prepare for the Lord's table this morning, my heart is just so encouraged and so thankful for the word here in Psalm 46. And I pray that it would strengthen and embolden your people as we prepare to leave here and go into the places that you've sent us. Why? Because... You are God, and you're at work, always and forever. And so we take of this table knowing that we've been invited to it together this morning. And it stands as a sacrament of the new kingdom. The people who have been redeemed, who are members of that kingdom. And we take of it with not just joy, but with peace this morning. May that be so for each and every person that's here that knows Christ. It's in Christ's name. Amen.